Scuba Obsessed Weekly Podcast, we talk about all things scuba diving, from cool new gear to places to dive and scuba news. Scuba Obsessed episode 342 is recorded live September 14th, 2017. Welcome back to Scuba Obsessed. I'm Darren Jolson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan, where the water is still a few weeks from getting hard. Joining me this week, we have Mac, the dive mentor. How are you doing today, Mac? I'm doing very well, and the water temperature tonight was 69 in the river. Oh, nice. 69. Yes. Yeah, this is, uh, sometimes I think the fall, you get a little bit of, a little bit of better benefit. In the spring, when it gets all sunny and you think it should be warm is when it's, it's chilly. I'd like to thank everybody who's uh, been tuning in and downloading. We certainly appreciate it. Uh, in, the, in the chat room tonight, we have TKD Derek from Melbourne, Australia. We also have uh, Kevin won't be on the show. He was at a, a seminar this evening, evening or a presentation. He's driving back, but he's listening in. And we'll have some other people who will pop in as the show is recording. So, Without any further ado, let's go ahead and jump right on into the news. The first article we have is out of Hawaii. It's kind of a follow-up. If you remember earlier in the year, there have been some discussions on uh, aquarium fish collecting. The state has suspended aquarium fish permitting, which you need the permit to be able to collect. They stopped issuing and renewing aquarium fish collection permits in response to this week's state Supreme Court ruling. The State Department of Land and Natural Resources said in a statement Thursday it has discontinued the permits until it receives further guidance. The state's high court ruled Wednesday that issuing, issuance of permits must comply with the Hawaii Environmental Policy Act, which requires an environmental study. The ruling said the lower court must determine whether recreational aquarium fish is exempt from the law. Hawaii is the world's third largest source of commercial aquarium fish after Indonesia and the Philippines. The ruling reversed lower court decision that sided with the state. Each commercial aquarium collection permit authorized removal of an unlimited number of fish or other aquatic life from Hawaii's coastal waters. The ruling noted each recreational aquarium collection permit authorized the annual catch limit of 2,000 fish. The West Coast Hawaiian Island has more aquarium fish collecting regulations than the rest of the state. Rules for the fishery date to the late 1990s when the state legislator banned fish collecting along sections of the coastline in response to concerns about declining fish stocks. Today, collecting is permitted is prohibited on 35% of the coast. Scientists say these no-take areas have helped some aquarium fish stocks rebound. And then, Mac, you said you'd, you had uh, seen some other information on this? Yeah, I was sort of curious since we're talking just the you know Hawaiian islands and I'm looking at the... the surface area that is involved in this compared to, you know, Malaysia and the Philippines or what they would consider the Pacific Coral Triangle. Uh, there's a culture there trying to institute. It's called the Orn- Ornamental Marine Species, OMS. And they're saying that that business provides valuable income for the developing nations and nations in the Indo-Pacific Coral Triangle. And there's an up which most of the species are being exported. Um, now, what they're also trying to do, there's an increasing interest in culturing the ornamental marine species, meaning let's grow our own, basically, in the light of the dramatic increase in the trade over the past two decades. And I looked at their figures, and they're just going ramping up. They said due to the high value of OMS, meaning cultured-type uh, ornamental species, you know that can provide a very nice livelihood to the developing nations. And they're saying the vast majority of OMS, meaning the marine species, are imported from Indonesia and the Philippines and the Coral Triangle, which stretches from Australia, north of the Philippines, and west of Malaysia. And it said that area supports the highest coral reef and seagrass biodiversity on Earth. They also made a note that in checking most of their areas out there, uh, only they would only consider 1% of that vast area as being really nice and unspoiled, 1%. 
And then that went on to talk about that the Philippines and Indonesia remain the top export of wild-caught marine fish, supplying about 85% of the global demand. And if you look at how much money that is, a bunch. They also talked about that 40 years of lightly regulated collection compounded by cyanide use has decimated many of the reefs. And they talked about uh, many fish collection sites, high-value ornamentals like angelfish, clown triggerfish, or conspicuously absent. You just can't find them. And since Finding Nemo premiered, they said they had a soaring demand for clownfish, and uh, which caused the populations to plunge as much as 75% in some areas where they're at. They also talked about going through and reviewing, you know, what can we do to help prevent these species from coming extinct or minimize, is, you know, go your own. But they talked about the world's marine habitat continue to be assailed by climate change, but superseded by pollution and unsustainable fishing. And they had figures on how much fishing they're doing out there, trying to feed all the millions and billions of people. And talked about, obviously, poor fish and invertebrate harvest practices do little for conservation. And I was always interested in that uh, cyanide. They said a reoccurring issue is the use of sodium cyanide ought to have originated in the Philippines back in the 50s. And they, they talked about it as an effective nerve toxin. Cyanide is squirted into coral heads or rock crevices to stun hard-to-catch fish. They said the downside is the mixture burns both the corals, the vital organs of the fish, and results in 75% of death to all living things exposed to it. Not a very effective uh, method to catch fish if you're killing 75% of them. Yeah. And they also talked about uh, regulated collection, using nets, nut poisons, butter stocking, shipping techniques, uh, imposing sensible size, limit, uh, catch species limits, can make a big difference in their looking to uh, doing that. They talked about the initial recommendations for sustainable marine aquarium trade is avoid hard-to-keep fish because uh, the mortality rates for these fish are estimated at 99%, so why not ban them entirely? And if they can grow them, you can do it that way. Um, number two, they said promote hardy fish, meaning look for the ones that are always going to survive, like the clownfish, gobies, surgeon fish. And if the survival rate increases, then the hobbyist is going to spend a lot uh, less for upkeep and stock replacement. They also said ship to artificial corals and invertebrates. And unless you're you know, a reef aquarium expert with cutting-edge technology, you're probably – don't have the, the bank account to really do that correctly. Then they said, ship to aquaculture, fish, and invertebrates, which meant, hey, you know, 95% of all marine uh, fish and invertebrates remain wild caught, but they're talking about, you know, where you have fish farmers, let's have aquaculturists start doing that. And the last is, they said, let's raise the prices of saltwater fish and invertebrates and, uh, like they said, the reality of marine fish keeping is it's not for everybody. Higher prices limit the hobby to those with time, resources, and the discipline to keep the animals alive. More importantly, this translates to better income for local fishermen who will learn more from keeping less fish. And then finally, it, it said uh, hobbyists, pet stores, traders must self-regulate to ensure that new inductees are courted the proper knowledge, training, and respect for life needed to keep marine fish mor mortalities an absolute minimum. So interesting suggestions on how to help minimize the impact of collecting the fish. Yeah, it's interesting to see how uh, movies have had such an impact on that aquarium trade uh, with the Finding Nemo. And uh, that was one of the things that uh, some of the uh, companies in the Philippines were trying to figure out how to do was to domestically raise those uh inside tanks as opposed to going out and collecting them. Well, this next article we have is one of the greatest Arctic legends undersea wreck to unlock secrets of Franklin. Uh, they said six archaeologists camp out near a beach, uh, near a dive site with a small inflatable boat subject to the wind and the waves. This time of the year, the dedicated research vessels big enough to sleep 14 will be moored here alongside will be a barge located with everything from artifact cleaning labels to hyperbaric chamber if the divers get into trouble 
Vacuum dredges will suck sediment topside where workers will sift through it, uh, looking for anything from buttons to musket balls. A hydraulic crane will lift heavy items. Multi-bean sonar will scan the site. Divers wearing suits uh, warmed with hot water will be spending hours combing the wreck. I've never seen a case where shipwrecks has so much to contribute to the story, said uh, Mark Andre Breener head of the Parks Canadian Underwater Archaeological Team. The Franklin Expedition is one of the great legends of the Arctic exploration. The Erebus and its sister ship, the Terror, which lies deeper in water just to the north of King William's Island, Terror Bay, set out from England in 1845 with 129 men to search for the Northwest Passage. They never returned. A message was found in 1859 by a search vessel said both ships were trapped in the ice in late 1846 and remained so for about 18 months. It had added that April 1848, 105 survivors headed out on foot. None survived. More than 30 expeditions have since tried to find them. A few artifacts, graves, and horrible tales of cannibalism is all they had to show. In 2008, Parks Canada joined the effort using a uh, blend of Inuit oral history and systematic high-tech surveys. Airbus was found in 2014, to excited headlines around the world since then, Park Canada has been working to understand what's down there and what light it could shed in a story to become part of the Canadian history. Degree of preservation is astonishing, says Charles uh, Dagnow, one of the archaeolog- archaeologists. Typically, we deal with shipwrecks that are collapsed, split open, covered with sediment. This is a 3D structure so well preserved you can actually see furniture in place. The home remains in position. The latrines are still in place. The cook's gallery is there, complete with a stove. So it is the steam engine, one of the earliest outfitted for the ship. The Erebus sailed with 3,000-volume library, equipping it to print a ship's newspaper materials to stage amateur theatricals. Uh, uh, it held a daguerreotype camera, capturing maybe images from the voyage. The wreck is expected to offer compelling insight to the lives of both officers and rank-and-file seamen. There is, for example, a seaman's chest. They would sit on it, eat on it, but they would also store their personal belongings in it. One of them is right next to the forward ladder way. We're going to look at excavating it and retrieving its contents. Ice has crushed the deck atop Franklin's cabin, but the contents should remain. We're open to find many things here. Personal artifacts relate to individuals, but also records, documents saying what happened to the expedition after the abandonment of the vessel and why these vessels were abandoned and where they were abandoned. These will not be anonymous artifacts. The names of the ship crew are known. Government of uh, Nanuvit, archaeological Doug Stanton, has already developed a DNA database of 19 of them in the divers sense their presence. A belt plate has been linked to uh, Daniel Bryant, sergeant of the Royal Marines, a Buddhist surface well maintained and decorated with seal fur. Traces of skin inside retain enough DNA to be identified. That artifact is, in particular was for me wonderful. I felt like I was excavating the wardrobe of one of the officers on board. Where objects were found could also shed light on the interactions with the Inuit. A pair of unrelated objects found together may suggest hunters and scavengers using items before the Erebus sank. Total of 64 artifacts, including ship's bell, have already been recovered. Many are now on display at the National Maritime Museum in London. Their ultimate fate is in dispute. As a warship, the Erebus and its contents remain the property of the Royal Navy. United Kingdom, however, has granted Canada care and custody. The Nuvut has uh, its own claim, pointing out a clause in its land claim giving it ownership of archaeological sites within its boundaries. The matter is under discussion by Franklin Interim Advisory Committee, which includes representatives from Nunavut, Ottawa, and the nearest communities. Governments used to take the artifacts to simply tell their side of the story that they wanted to tell, says Parks Canada. This approach was to make sure that the Inuit, who have been part of the story for longer than those in the southern Canada, were able to make sure that the story's told. The story's Sound artifacts, what happens with the artifacts, will be part of the conservation with the advisory committee. Meanwhile, the site is watched by four Inuit guardians who, from their camp, besides the archaeologists, are able to spot any intruders. The RCMP, Transport Canadian, Canadian Coast Guard, also keep an eye out, as does the National Defense for Satellite Monitors. 
the likelihood of a large ship making its way into this area unobserved is small. It's a long way out. Anybody who's been coming in will have been observed. The system as a whole has a good sense of who's coming in the area and who's leaving the area. The study of the Erebus is just beginning its location much farther south than it could possibly have drifted in sea ice has already raised questions whether the ship was remaining after being abandoned. The real fun is about to begin, says archaeologist and project manager Ryan Harris. The next step is targeted excavation, and that's exciting bit for the archaeologists. 170 years after the mystery was born, science and Inuit history are about to resurrect the most we've ever known about the story that poets, novelists, and artists have already turned into myth. So interesting. Yeah, I looked up a little bit because I wasn't familiar with the Erebus, and I've got a few items I can add if you like. Sure, go for it. Well, it was designed uh, by Sir Henry Peak and constructed by the Royal Navy and Pembroke Dockyards in Wales in 1826. What I thought was also interesting is the vessel was named after the dark region in Hades of Greek mythology called Erebus. And she was obviously a warship. Uh, the, she's 372-ton. She was armed with two mortars, one 13-inch and one 10-inch, and 10 guns. The ship took part in the Ross Expedition in 1839 to 1843 and was abandoned during the third Franklin ex- Exhibition. Duh, expedition. The Arbus was refitted as an exploration vessel for Antarctic service, so by that token, I'm wondering if she had all the guns they talked about. Um, and on 21st November 1840, Captain by James Ross Clark departed from Tasmania for Antarctica in company with Terra. And in January uh, 1841, crews of both ships landed on Victoria land, proceeded to name the areas of the landscape after British politicians, scientists, and acquaintances, probably girlfriends. Uh, and Mount Erebus uh, on Ross Island was named after one ship and Mount Terror after the other. The crew then discovered the Ross Ice Shelf, but were unable to penetrate and followed it eastward until the lateness of the season compelled them to return to Tasmania. The following season, in 1842, Ross continued to survey the Great Bear, uh, the Great Ice Barrier. i got to find my note here again. Okay, as it was called back then, continuing to follow it eastward. Both ships uh, returned to the were returning to the Antarctica in 1842-1843 season. For their next voyage to the Antarctic under Sir John Franklin, both the ships were outfitted with steam engines from the London and Greenwich Railway steam locomotives. That of the Airbus was rated at 25 horsepower, or 19 kilowatts, and could propel the ship at four knots. The ship carried 12 days supply of coal, the ships had iron plating added to their hulls, and Sir Franklin sailed in the Airbus in overall command of the expedition, and the terror was again commanded by Francis Kozer, and the expedition was ordered to, gain, to gather magnetic, magnetic data uh, in the Canadian Antarctic and to complete the cost of crossing of the Northwest Passage. And that had already been charted from both the East and the West, but had never been entirely navigated. And then it goes to the mystery aspect about uh, the ships were last seen entering Baffin Bay, B-A-F-F-I-N, in August of 1845. The disappearance of the Franklin Expedition set off a massive search, as everybody has been documented. The broad circumstances of the expedition's fate were first revealed when Hudson Bay Company, Dr. John Ray, collected artifacts, testimony from the locals, in 1853, later expeditions up to 1866 confirmed these reports. It said both ships had become icebound, had, had been abandoned by the crews, just like you had said previously, totaling approximately 130 men, all of who died from various causes, including hypothermia, scurvy, starvation, trying to over, you know do the overland trek to the south. Subsequent expeditions until the late eight, uh, 1980s included autopsies of crew members, which revealed their shoddy canned rations may have been tainted by both lead and botulism. And they said the oral reports by local uh, Eskimos or Inuits uh, that some of the crew members resorted to cannibalism were at least somewhat supported by forensic evidence of cut marks on the skeletal remains of crew members found on King Williams Island during the late 20th century. And I remember reading an article on that and the information about the uh, lead and botulism poisoning. Yeah, the natural a British Geogra- transport. 
chip the renovation, spotted two ships on a large ice flow off the coast of Newfoundland in, eight, uh, in April 1851. Identities of the ships were not confirmed. It is suggested over the years that might have been the uh, Terra, though it is now certain it could not have been since they were most likely abandoned whaling ships. I still thought the article was interesting, especially knowing they had uh, steam engines from railroad locomotives, and I thought, you know, 25 horsepower doesn't sound like a lot. Sure beats rowing, though. <laughs> oh, can you believe that? Yeah. But it was plus, interesting to find plus, out it's named after the dark region in Hades. Yeah, yeah, Erebus. Uh, I, I'm, I'm sure also they got a little bit of benefit from heat uh, from those engines as well. Uh, I remember National Geographic when it was they, – they originally had that article years ago, and it's worth looking, uh, looking it up if you haven't uh, seen it before. Uh, and they had found the, the bodies that had been buried – which was just a small portion of the crew, and that's where they had uh, found the, uh, you know, they did some analysis of the tissue, and they had the lead poisoning. So Karen in the chat room is saying lead and botulism makes a bad day, and uh, you can just imagine the state of mind that starts to happen when you have, uh, you know, poisoning like that going on. Uh, so even in the best of situations when you're starving, uh, you you can have cannibalism rear its head, but, uh, you know, you start having mental faculties a little bit diminished and uh, uh, all sorts of things can be happening. This next article we have up is talking about Lake Superior has slipped on the ranking of water clarity. Uh, Lake Superior has lost its championship title as the clearest of the Great Lakes. Currently, Lake Huron is in first place and Lake Michigan slid up in the second place spot, making... Superior third place. A new study of water clarity in the upper Great Lakes shows Lakes Erie, Lake Erie, and Ontario Trail all three. This is a significant historical and economic importance, according to the study by scientists at Michigan Techno Technological University, the University of Michigan, University of California, Los Angeles, and Colorado State University. More important may be that the ecological implications of the large increase in water clarities in Lakes Hurons and Michigan. Those include change in the distribution and behavior of invertebrates, invertebrates such as spiny water fleas and other crustaceans. What accounts for this dramatic shift? The study published in the Journal of Great Lakes Research identified three principal factors. One is a reduction of phosphorus entering lakes here on in Michigan, largely from agriculture runoff and fertilizers. Heavy phosphorus levels can create algae blooms such as the one in western Lake Erie that shut off the Lido water supply in 2014. The second is proliferation of invasive quagga mussels that feed into plankton as they filter the water of the lakes. The National Wildlife Federation reports an estimated 10 trillion quagga and zebra mussels that blanket the lake's bottom succeeded in doubling water clarity during the past decade. While both types of mussels filter water, quaggas have a greater impact because they can survive deeper and colder waters, uh, said Robert uh, Schuchman co-director of Michigan Tech Research Institute in Ann Arbor and co-author of the study, their sheer numbers are a dominant filtering mechanism for water clarity. Third factor is climate change, which has had more indirect impact on water clarity. For example, the warming water temperatures in Lake Superior could open the door for the rival invasives there, he said, and climate-driven extreme weather events, spring floods, and farm field runoff can increase the amount of phosphorus entering rivers that empty into the Great Lakes. Increasing water clarity isn't necessarily a good thing. According to National Wildlife Federation, clear water allows sunlight to penetrate the lake bottom, creating ideal conditions for algae to grow and thus enables the growth and spread of deadly algae blooms, algae foul beaches, and cause botulism outbreaks that have killed countless fish and more than 70,000 aquatic birds in the last 10 years. In addition, the organization says clear water may look nice to us, but the lack of plankton floating the water because of hungry quagga and zebra mussels means less food for native fish. Schumer said disruptive to the food web, and you go from one cell algae all the way up to game fish people like to catch. Another negative clear water promotes the growth of submerged aquatic vegetation, a native plant known as cladophoria that resembles angel hair underwater. Schumann said poor water quality used to limit the maximum depth to about 20 feet, but improved clarity lets it grow as deep as 60 feet. Storms can come in and literally get ripped up off its root mechanism and ends up going on the beach. As has happened at Sleeping Bear National Lakeshore on Lake Michigan, it smells bad, but also caused botulism and some major avian kills of seabirds, he said. 
Wow, it sounds like people are just crying. I think my grandfather had a saying, you know, you'd, you'd be upset if they hung you with a new rope, which I, I don't necessarily <laughs> know what that means. I don't want to be hung at all. But you can't tell me that 300 years ago the water clarity was bad. I mean, not that I like invasive species in general, but what, what is he saying? We need, we need to poop in the water a little more? I'm not sure. I know that uh, that Clodophora, that, yeah. that native plant they were talking about, we did surveys for that back in the 70s when I worked at the new plant. That was one of the diving jobs I had, was go out and do the surveys at certain locations uh, in the vicinity. Yeah, And for the nuclear plant, your, your concern was the intake probably. Well, actually, we were uh, looking at the aspect of warm water. How is that going to affect the vegetation? A lot of people said it was bad, and it turned out like, uh, no. Uh, their fish really liked that, and it increased the population in that whole area of the fish. So interesting. I, I'm kind of surprised, and I think they must be – I'd like to know where they're taking the measurements because certainly you can't tell me that the southern half of Lake Michigan is clearer – than Lake Superior on average. So the oh, I don't, oh, I do know. Remember, we, we covered Lake Superior, and one of the reasons it does not have the vast quantities of quagga slash zebra is because it didn't have the kelpie deposits necessary to be extracted so they can grow. Yes. So part of it was the temperature, but then part of it was just they didn't have the right balance of nutrients they would need. Right. And I can believe about the, the aspect of vegetation growing down to 60 feet but not anywhere where you have shallows. That's normally in a stagnant-type area that doesn't have a lot of uh, tidal shift due to the storms. Cause we have some, you know, some heroic, horrific storms out there that, you know, 12-foot waves, if you've got something in 20-foot of water, it's going to get beat up and ripped out. How many places do you know you've had vegetation at 60 feet? I, I, I haven't seen any. No. Well, you, you look at some of these inland lakes and ponds, and even the best maintained ones, you, uh, I've never seen, what, probably about 25 is where you get that dark band. Yeah, you're talking 25. I haven't seen anything local more than 25 feet. Yeah. So that'll be interesting. Uh, I'm, I'm having a hard time following the article because it just seemed like, you know, we, we can't make this sound good. we got to make it sound bad. And is that well, just I'm, because I'm, they need more money for research or... You know, are we trying to scare people, or what's what's the intent? Yeah, I was curious on one aspect. They didn't mention Lake Erie. I think they did once about the the algae blooms. Does that mean Lake Erie is even cleaner because you it grows more stuff now? They didn't go in, <laughs> and I wish they had a little bit. No. Part of that, I think, of course, is pollution you have there in the area. But we've talked several times, even this year, about some of the toxic algae blooms they've had. Nothing as bad as what they had in 2014, though. Yeah. Well, part of what they're doing over there in the Lake Erie side, uh, it's it's the agricultural runoff is is a huge amount, but they uh, they've been trying to balance the amount of treatment. If they know that they're going to have a season where the algae blooms are going to are going to be a problem, there's things that they've been able to do to the water, extra treatment that have prevented those algae blooms. But it's expensive, so they're trying to be cheap about it and not treat it to that level. They only want to treat it to just the amount that they need to, which this is where you know my feeling is that the water coming out of the the waste treatment plant should be stuff you should be able to drink. Not that I want to, but that should be your goal. And it's telling me that if they've got to treat it that heavy uh, or they've got these blooms, that they're not quite living up to the responsibility with this with the wastewater treatment. If, if if the water that they put out was to that quality that you want, you wouldn't put it back out into the lake, back in the the supply uh, supply source. Why why clean it twice? I see what you're saying. Yeah. And if you did that, then that might not be a bad idea because you know you're already processing the water to make it clean, mm-hmm. process it more, and then put it back into the system. Yeah. That that's an interesting interesting to see the cost benefits the the what that looked like if you did that. Well, I'm sure there would be quite a bit of benefits. The psychological aspect of it uh, is going to be one that's going to be tough to get people over. Because you're right. Because what, what you're doing is you're is you're taking that water in, you're processing it, getting it clean enough. Because the water is originally coming from the lake, which you've already 
especially if you're on the uh, the eerie side of the equation, uh, is not the cleanest in the first place. So you're treating that up to a point where it's drinkable. You then run it through the system, and then it goes through your waste treatment at the end, and then you're putting it back out into the same body where you're drinking from anyway. Uh, so you're just talking about closing the loop, which would be a little bit more energy efficient, and if you're doing it properly, would be uh, probably a, ecologically better. But probably not popular. But uh, that, that, that was interesting. I The first I'd heard of that, because when somebody says Lake Superior to me, it makes me think that something's much cleaner. Ah, and Karen, this is uh, pointed out something very thing. You can't get the medication reg- residues out easily. And that is something that I, I do think that we need to look into is that some of these medications that people are on is, uh, is how, how do you come up with a system that's able to filter those out? Uh, caffeine, you know, uh, other medications, uh, those are, those are getting, uh, coming out in high quantities out of your waste treatment plants. And then here's one I think you might like. The mysterious fang sea creature washes up on a Texas beach, uh, as, as, uh, the impacts of Harvey and, uh, Irene are, are evaluated. Uh, somebody walking along a, a Texas city beach noticed something that was a little bit unusual. A picture of a fanged sea creature was, uh, shared on Twitter. Okay, biology Twitter, what in the heck is this? Found on a beach in Texas City, Texas. Uh, let's see, what's her name? Desi, Desi? Uh She wrote on September 6th. One respondent, Adam Summers, a professor at the University of Washington and a school of aquatic and fishery science, says the creature was identifiable due to the remains of skin coloration in the body, head shape, teeth, and the shape of the jaw. Well, the creature is at first sight appears to have no eyes. Summer point out that they're actually just decayed. Summer credited Ben Frable of uh, UC San Diego Scripps Institute of Oceanography with identifying the fish as a fangtooth snake eel. Fable wasn't sure whether Hurricane Harvey, which hit Texas on August 25th, was to blame for bringing the creature to the beach. They live in shallow water sometimes and wash up on beaches even without storms. According to the two biologists and eel specialists, Dr. Kenneth Tai, there's a high probability animals a fangtooth snake eel, but it could also be a gardener conger eel. All three of these species occur off Texas and have large fang-like teeth. On this, he reported to the BBC. The fangtooth snake eel, also known as, um, I'm going to skip the Latin name, but the common name is tusky eel. It's usually found in waters between 30 and 90 meters deep in the western Atlantic Ocean. It feeds itself on small fish, crustaceans. It can reach 33 inches in length. Other Twitter users agreed that whatever the name of the animal is, it is stuff of nightmares. And I don't believe that one photo is uh, of that. I think that's from a movie. Uh, Creatures of all kinds were affected by the strong hurricanes that battered the southern U.S. In these recent weeks, numerous animals were stranded when Hurricane Irma lashed Florida, including... uh, manatees marooned in Florida's Sarasota Bay and later rescued by a group of people. Florida residents are at least spared of any encounters with alligators who are confined to the Gatorland in Orlando to avoid posing risks to humans. So they they put a sign out saying all gators to Orlando? I don't quite think they could read, though, can they? I don't know. It's like, you know, everybody, you're safe because the gators are all in the park. I it doesn't quite make sense. Uh, maybe it's lost in the American English to British English translation. Did you see a couple of the comments and the pictures in the comment sections? No, I didn't get down that far. One of those is, remember the movie Cars? The movie Cars? Those creatures that lived in the desert and they came up and they'd eat the people, the, the huge monsters yeah. with a funny face. Mm-hmm. One of them suggested that that might be coming your way soon. <laughs> <laughs> And then we have the Navy is surveying a World War Two. Oh, I said two World War One shipwreck off Long Island. Navy researchers descended in the waters around Fire Island this week to survey the wreck of U.S. Navy cruiser San Diego ACR six, on which six American sailors lost their lives when she was sunk as a result of enemy action off of coast of Long Island on July nineteenth, nineteen eighteen. The survey's objective is assess the conditions of the wrecked site and determine. If the ship, the only major warship lost by the United States in World War I, was sunk as a result of German submarine-launched torpedo or mined. Ultimately, 
data gathered will be will help in determining the management of the sunken military craft, which lies only a few miles south of Long Island. The survey, led by the Naval History and Heritage Command Underwater Archaeological Branch, was performed in partnership with Coastal Sediments, Hydro- Hydrodynamics, Engineering Laboratory of the University of Delaware, College of Earth, Ocean, and Environment. Additional research will be provided by the Naval Surface Warfare Center, Caradoc Division, and the Fire Island U.S. Coast Guard Station will provide essential logistics support. And I have to stop for a second, because if you look at these acronyms, these acronyms are longer than many words, and they must make money. You know, the, it's like a, you get a $10 million in grant money per syllable or something, because those are crazy names. Studying sunken military craft offers researchers a glimpse into the lives of sailors who have served with them, as well as the Navy and the nations they serve, said N.H. H.C., which go back up to our key here. I have no idea who, though it's Naval History and Heritage Command, Underwater Archaeological Branch, Head Robert Nalen, Ph.D. Got to get all those letters in there. We believe the modern remote sensing and interpretive tools at our disposal now will help with the understanding of the site and maybe teach us something new about what caused San Diego to sink. The U.S. Coast Guard Fire Island served as a base of operations for the survey and provided essential logistics support to the expedition during underwater days. The survey will also help us fulfill critical preservation part of our mission by assessing the site and determining how much damage has been done to the wreck in the past century by both natural environmental processes and unauthorized disturbance. Nayland said six American sailors lost their lives in San Diego sank, which is one of the reasons Nayland and his team believe safeguarding such wrecks is important. Many of the Service war graves. Additionally, they may hold significant historical values, safeguard state secrets, carry environmental or public safety hazards such as oil or ordnance. I don't even know if I should go on. So, state secrets. So, 1918 shipwreck has got the recipe for lead to gold. Is that, that would what, be nice? <laughs> I told. This is nuts. This is this is pure propaganda. I wonder how many committees wrote this article. Because you can, you can. The, the first clue should be that everybody had their full titles, names, degrees, everything, all in there with acronyms, and they made sure that everybody who was involved with it got their got credits in some capacity. Why? Why so important now? And it's relatively shallow, what hundred feet? Correct. Yeah. So what's the excitement now? I mean, I, I'm not sure I understand that. I, I, I did look that up a little bit. It was interesting. You want to have a couple of comments on it? Sure. Uh, it says, at 11.05 the next day, meaning July 19, San Diego was in northwest, uh, northeast of the Fire Island lightship when an explosion occurred on the cruiser's port side adjacent to the port engine room and well below the waterline. The bulkhead at the site of the explosion was warped so badly that the watertight door between the engine room and number five or number eight fire room could not be shut and both compartments uh, immediately flooded. Uh, Christie assumed that the ship had been torpedoes, immediately sounded submarine defense quarters, all guns to open fire on anything resembling a periscope. Uh, he called for full speed, both engines, hard right rudder, told both engines when they were out of commission, and mach- machine compartments were rapidly flooding. It already had a nine-degree list. It basically said 10 minutes after the explosion, crew began to sink. Um, they lowered boats, and that said two men were killed instantly when the explosion occurred. A crewman who had been on the port railing uh, on the port shaft was never seen again. One man killed by one of the smoke stacks breaking loose when, it, when the ship capsized. And say a sixth was trapped inside the crow's nest and drowned. But the other part, they talked about the Navy Department was informed the German mine lane submarine was operating off the east coast of the U.S., and the U.S. Naval Air Service was put on alert aircraft of the first Yale unit based at Bayshore, attacked what they thought was a submerged submarine lying on the seabed at 100 feet and dropped several bombs. It turned out to be they were bombing the San Diego. <laughs> Insult to injury. Yeah. So they obviously knew where it was. Well, and this is not a new wreck. I mean, they, they've known it's been there for a while. But does it really take all this resources for this single wreck? You know, is this a summer junket? Is that what was involved? Or 
Is this a PR stunt just to tell everybody that they're actually doing their job? Because we, we're the first ones to bitch about them the making something protected and then not doing well, anything to protect it. Now, one of the items here says uh, more scuba divers have died over the years on that wreck than the number of crew killed in its sinking, but it has not diminished in its popularity. Nicknamed the lobster hole by the abundance of lobsters living there, it's also home to many kinds of fish. The wreck lies at, and it gives you the exact location of it if you want to go dive it. Yeah, yeah. So, I don't know. Cool, I love the dive. If I was them, I'd be diving on it too, but... Uh, Lobster Hotel, you bet. Why there you not? go. That's, you know what they're come eating. get food. And then we have some vintage maps from the swashbuckling era. They're helping scientists find... Uh, treasure in gold reefs. Professor Lauren McClancy of Colby College was visiting the British Admiralty Library in Portsmouth, England, when she unearthed a series of magnificent antique nautical charts depicting waters around the Florida Keys. The charts were made by British cartographers and dated from just before the American Revolution. They were the works of the world's best cartographers at the time, and each chart was basically a Google map for sailors as tall as a grown man, Sepia-colored and packed with incredible level of detail, really beautiful pieces of work, said McClinkin. I'm, I'm probably mispronouncing. Among other things, the maps included notes on where to find fresh water, where to hunt sea turtles, where to avoid dangerous, even potentially deadly coral reefs. It's tempting to associate coral with pleasurable activities like scuba diving, but the reefs have always been hazards for sailors. Ancient shipwrecks littered the waters around Florida Keys, including the wreck of the Atosha, which lost $400 million in gold and jewels, not to mention all but five of its crew when it hit the reef during the hurricane in 1622. So when the British took the Keys in the French and Indian War in 1760s, their map makers weren't just making fanciful drawings of dragon-filled oceans, they were mapping out a plan for survival. Two and a half centuries later, uh, she saw even more potential in the old maps. There are windows in the past that could tell about the future. Since the maps were made, many of the coral reefs around South Florida have been lost, and she wondered if the maps could help us rediscover or learn from those art and ancestral reefs. Working with colleagues at the University of Queensland and the Australian Research Council, her team poured over the maps using modern satellite photography to play spot the difference. What they found was astonishing. When compared to modern times, nearly half the reefs from the 18th century had disappeared, closer to land as much as 90%. The species, the specifics behind why the reefs have disappeared were beyond the scope of the study, but it's likely that over the years, regular dredging, digging up the seabed to make it easier for ships to pass through or near shore development, such as seawalls, may have broken up the coral. Modern coral reefs still face these pressures as well as uh, bleaching events that can kill off reef-making organisms. Coral reefs are some of the most diverse ecosystems on Earth. Healthy reefs provide food, jobs, tourism dollars to nations around the world. The current reefs around the Florida Keys alone are estimated to be worth $7.6 billion. By revealing the location of these forgotten pirate-era reefs, her work helped researchers understand the long-term trends in coral cover and how it has been affected by human activity. This could in turn help us better understand both where we could potentially restore the reefs and how to better protect animals like fish or sea turtles that depend on them. She is planning to return to the Abilty Library early next year and believes a technique could be used to find more forgotten reefs around the world. Anywhere the British went, they mapped. Jamaica's Kingston Harbor and Hong Kong Harbor in particular may have, have uh, similarly detailed charts of forgotten reefs. George Gauld, the 18th century Mac Mapaker who created most of the charts she used, was not able to finish his work. He and his British colleagues were ultimately chased away by American privateers during the Revolutionary War, but their maps remain, and thanks to researchers, they're still helping us understand the oceans we love to sail and what helps our Earth function. And then uh, her work was published in September 6th, Journal of Sci Science Advances. That makes sense. You know, find some old maps. That's going to tell you at least what they thought they had back then. I'm not sure how that really helped shipwreck looking. If 90% of the inshore winds have been removed by man and nature, what happened to the ships that may have been impaled on them? I would imagine they're gone too. Well, that's what I was, kind of a misleading uh, uh, And I'm title. still not sure how that helps 
potentially restore reefs, and how to better protect animals like fish or sea turtles. Well, I think what she's getting at is you've is she may be of the camp of people who want to return uh, stuff to pre-human conditions. So maybe she's advocating that all that dredging that's been done be reversed and you replant reefs there. Ain't going to happen, but interesting. I was hoping that she'd be able to find some shipwrecks (laughs) that dig here for gold. Well, that does it for Scuba News. Those are the articles that we have this week. And I'd like to thank everybody who's uh, jumping on in the chat room. We have picked up a few more. We have Karen, uh, who, who's come in. And I think we had a Thursday, Thursday dive this week, didn't we? Actually, we did. And uh, the first one out there was Karen. And probably the last one out there was Karen. <laughs> Though she was not diving, she was providing encouragement and support to those who did participate. Yeah. Seemed like she had to. And I like that the water temperature was 69 degrees out there. I bet the water level is down two feet from the shoreline. Oh, wow. And uh, even if you're out of shape and not ready to go do rough water diving today, you could have gone across and back two or three times on a single tank of air. Oh, wow. Yeah. And the best finds are in the middle of the river by themselves, just sitting there. Yeah. So that we are. Just sitting there. <laughs> yeah. We're getting into that time of year where if you can get out in the river, it's it's great. We're pre-leaves. So we're and starting the visibility to see. was great. Excellent. Yeah, we, we've been a while without a heavy rain, so most of the rains are being absorbed pretty well, and they're not making it way into the streams and the rivers. I'm very curious to see if they're going to do this. The dam must be shut or minimizing some of the flow, and we've got the ecology dive coming up uh, mm-hmm. in two weekends, actually. It's on the 23rd. So if it stays like this, we should have a great harvest of junk. Excellent. Well, looking forward to it. I can't wait to to get back in the water. I actually made an attempt to get wet this week. I had my gear loaded. We got in the vehicle. And we were actually had made it out in the boat. We were on Lake Michigan. We were heading south to a wreck we hadn't visited in the last couple of years. And we heard that noise you never want to hear in the boat, which is grinding something. Uh, Not so. unless you got two engines. <laughs> yeah, we, we didn't have two engines. Unless you count a paddle as a second engine. There was not uh, two engines in there. Uh, and what had happened is the, and I didn't realize this, uh, you know, as many years as I've been on boats and around boats, I didn't realize that there were rubber inside uh props which you know after i saw what it did and how it's designed it's kind of that kind of makes sense but uh uh the boat we were on has it's a it's an inboard outboard so you've got which is a car engine modified to power a boat it's got a, a water jacket which is taking lake water and using it to cool the engine but it's stationary it's mounted to the floor of the boat and then it's got a shaft that comes out that goes into a lower what we call a lower unit and it can that can tilt down in the water, and it's got a propeller. So if you picture an an outboard motor attached to an engine inside a boat, then and that's an inboard outboard motor. An inboard motor would be the motor with just a straight shaft coming to a, a fixed prop, and that's kind of an older style. You don't see too common on uh, pleasure boats anymore. And then you have an outboard where the motor and everything's all mounted. So this is an inboard outboard motor. But that the the shaft that comes out of that lower unit has a spline on it, so it's this this textured. Uh, it's got grooves in the shaft, and then the prop fits on it. Uh, but between that prop and the shaft is this rubber gasket, and I think it's designed to absorb shocks uh, when it engages. And you know, anything rubber or synthetic like that, it eventually gives up the ghost, and that's what it did. It made a splendid noise. <laughs> we were planing at plus 20 knots heading out to the wreck. And so then, uh, luckily, it wasn't it wasn't strong enough to hold at max speed, but we were able to limp in under power, and we made it in. Um, there, we, we attempted to fix the, the outboard, uh, but we probably didn't have all the parts that we needed. So that ended it in that boat, and then we made an attempt on uh, Rod's boat, but in the meantime, I ended up getting something in my eye and uh, had to 
uh, couldn't make an attempt, which is disappointing. I don't know what I got in. I don't know if it came from my contacts or what it was, but it hurt. And, uh, yeah, so attempt again for this next week, and it looks like we're planning on going out Sunday provided the weather holds up. So that was my that was my almost dive. Yeah, well, at least you attempted. You know you have all the gear necessary. Yeah. I know that uh, Kevin's been out there doing very well. Mm-hmm. Uh, a good number. I think they've been on the Ann Arbor 5. Yeah, yeah, because we – Everybody wanted to go to Ann Arbor 5, but I was if, – if the boat I was on was heading to Ann Arbor 5, I was just going to play at the surface. Uh, I just wanted to get, you know, all the gear worked out for essentially my first dive of the season. So, mm-hmm. Well, I know the SAS groups have been still doing their uh, Wednesday night dives, mm-hmm. and we've had a good number of uh, muddies participate in that. Uh, the weekend dives are – people are trying to get on the wrecks right now. They're, they're yeah. staying away from the river. If, it, if it's nice to get on the big lake, they're out there somewhere, either Superior, Huron, uh, even Erie, Michigan. Yeah. Uh, who can blame them? Yeah. yeah our, Season's coming to a, you know, to a close for those, especially up north. Yeah, the, the chat room's reporting that they would love to see 69-degree Fahrenheit water temps. They're in 50-degree Fahrenheit at the moment, but that's in the southern hemisphere. Karen says that uh, they're expecting storms Sunday afternoon, so go, go early. And we'll have to keep an eye on it because it's, you don't want to be, uh, you know, I don't like heading out there when it's building because that can be an unpleasant day at the end of end of it. I always like to be out there when I got two motors on the boat. Yeah. Because sure as heck when that thing blows up, I mean, I mean the weather, not the engine, uh-huh. it's always nice to know you got a backup. At least you can get to the shore and get off the boat. Yes. A ramming speed hit up there and, and get it on shore, drag it as far as you can up. Yeah, just because you can see the shore doesn't mean it's that close. A lot of the diving we do, we can still see the uh, the shore of Lake Michigan, but you know, miles and miles is a long way to go without if you have problems. I, I just know that if you're out there and you're doing any searching at night with your side scan, you know, you best be wearing a strobe. I don't care what you're wearing, and you best have your life raft on or your your buoyancy compensator or yeah. flotation device. Because if you fall off that boat at night out there, it is pitch. And most of the boats around here don't have surflight on it. No. And you want that uh, GPS with man overboard button right there by wherever you're at because yeah. you can't see. And yeah. you're not going to swim the shore because you have no clue where it's at. Yeah, your two buddies with the uh, the light on their cell phone are not going to be able to spot you. Yeah. <laughs> So we got uh, some some diving in the plans. Hopefully, I can I can get out. And then you said two weeks for our ecology dive. Uh, actually, it's next week. Now that I look at, it, not even that. T- tomorrow, the sixteenth uh-huh. is uh, the. That is right. Then tomorrow is no fr- uh, Friday, Saturday, the sixteenth. They're having that sale at Wolf's in mm-hmm. Marine. Yep, from nine o'clock to twelve, I believe it is. And last year, I got some humdinger of a deal. So if you're interested in seeing what's available, weird things, boat, nautical, diving, you might want to run out there if you're available or close. And there's always good deals. The third is the Eco Dive there in Miles. Yep, yep. There's always good deals at that uh, going on. And uh, Jim Jim had, he was talking about heading to the other side of the state, but he says he he scrapped that idea because he needs to be there for the flea market. Well, like, it's fun to look at stuff anyway. Yeah. We'd like if to you get there early. I think they had free donuts, and that was always a plus. <laughs> yes. <laughs> free donuts, and uh, I think they they do uh, popcorn, too. Isn't that what Wolf's is known for? Yeah, generally on Saturday, I bop in there and get me a brownie and, and popcorn, just like freaking clockwork. They'd, oh, all right, here's that bum over there. He's getting the free food again. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and if you're looking for gear, the dive shop is uh, Jim was, was mentioning last week that they had gotten a bunch of dry suits in and also BCs and I picked up one of the BCs and uh, there's some nice Rangers. Uh, they also have some of the 911 versions. I think they're called the 911 versions, the safety versions. A little bit of extra. What are they running? Uh, I think they're like 400 or less. So you have to go in and uh, there's different prices depending on the options, but. Uh, 
you know, you can get a good deal, all in good shape. At least the ones I saw. Uh, dry suits, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't need one, so I didn't head over there. But I, my BC was sorely needing a replacement, so I've grabbed one. I was hoping to try it out this last weekend, but hopefully this next weekend I will do it. And also, we should do a shout out to uh, it's somebody's birthday today. It's Rick Sinowick of Divers Sync and Divers Incorporated. So happy birthday, Rich! Uh, like to thank WRVO Radio for putting us on the air another year. If you like hunting, fishing, and the great outdoors, you certainly want to give them a try. You can go to our website, www.scubaobsessed.com. Scroll on down to the bottom, and there's a link that will take you to WRVO Radio. And as well, you're on the site. Why not click on our Patreon link and uh, give us a little bit of donation? We can use the money. We've got some additional costs that are coming up. We hit the end of the year, and we have some fees that are related to putting on the program and we're constantly trying to improve things so if you are listening to this show and you're getting any value from it drop us a dollar three dollars or more we'll get you access to the show notes early and we're still working on trying to take care of the streaming we're currently streaming through uh talk shoe for the audio we're using discord for the chat but uh, i'm trying to do some bridging which all takes buying additional gear and software to get that uh to mesh up and and come up with a solution that everybody likes and i've even considered doing a video i've got it figured out i just need to find the four hours to uh piece it together and then you're gonna have to give us some feedback see if you like the video version because i'm not seeing where our our show and video is going to be all that great but we'll give it a shot Uh, mac you have anything you want to plug well, other than the uh, college dive, if somebody is local, and even if you don't want to dive, feel free to come out because service support is very important, and we could not do half the job without the people on shore, you know, with the work gloves, the, maybe the hip sometime, haul, and uh, wheelbarrows hauling the gear, the junk oh, we yeah. bring up over to where it can be displayed. Yeah. So you, you'd only miles, come yeah. out. Yeah, you'd only get about a third of the trash out of there without the shore support because a lot of it's heavy. You know, they'll throw lines down, we'll tie stuff up, they can pull it up, and then they'll get it to the spot because there's just no way you can do it from the water. Some of the, some of the spots, uh, you know, if we do it the exact same spot we did last year, you're along a pier, and that's quite a bit of effort coming up and down that. Uh, so looking forward to that. That'll be fun. I'd like to thank Vanessa Homiak for sponsoring the show at the Dive Nitrox level. And I think uh, Podium, I believe that's how it's pronounced, who we hosting the audio streaming through now, which that's where if you're listening on, let me, let's see, I'm going to pull that up so we can talk about all the different ways that you can listen to the show. And everybody knows, of course, you can find us on iTunes. So you can search for Scuba Obsessed on iTunes and we should come up. I haven't seen any instances where we haven't. Uh, if you listen to that way, why not drop us a five-star review? That would certainly help. As I stall for this webpage coming up, we're also on uh, Google Play. Uh, Google Play, you could do a search for Scuba Obsessed. We recently added that. I, they, We had been listed on there for a while, and then they changed all the requirements for feeds. Your image had to be a certain size, and since we are using TalkShoe, it didn't support that size image, so we hadn't been on there in a while, so we're back on. You can listen to us on Stitcher Smart Radio, uh, which is the way I actually listen to the program. I, I find I now with data being available in so many different places, it's easier just to, to use that. We're on uh, TuneIn. You can uh, search for that. Uh, I still can't get this page to come up. We're on Overcast. And uh, I'll have to prepare for next week, and we'll have a, a full list. But uh, let us know how you're you're listening or following the show. You can go to www.scubaobsessed.com, the Contact Us page, give us feedback that way, or you can send us an email, the show at scubaobsessed. That will find its way to us. We're on Twitter at scubaobsessed, facebook.com forward slash scubaobsessed. Um, I think that just about does it. Uh, if Kevin was here... So we'll say he's here in spirit. He'd be saying, um, why not support your local dive shops? Because if you want to get air, that's probably the place where you're getting it. So why not buy some other things to help them keep in business? Uh, and also those librarians. You know about those those librarians, don't you? 
I think I've I've gone through the, the, the our our long list of plugs. So, <laughs> <laughs> so that that leaves only one more thing to talk about. Are you aware of what time of the show it is? I think so because I'm really looking forward to it. I thought we had a good one last time, so I'm looking to see if we can top it this time. Uh oh, that's a that's a lot to to see, but uh, we'll try. So here we go. There are two brothers of whom had really large eyes and the other had huge ears. They went for a job in the ship. The captain said, what can you do? Well, I can be lookout, said the guy with the large eyes. Well, what about him, said the captain? Well, he's my brother, so he's got to come with me. The captain said, okay, but you be the lookout and you take him with up with you to the crow's nest and keep him out of my way. They've been at sea for a week uh, when the whistle from the, cruise, the crow's nest sounded in the wheelhouse ship bearing port 10 degrees the captain looked in the radar not an echo on the scope are you sure he inquired positive came the reply and what's more it's chinese well how do you know that he asked he said my brother can hear him talking i kind of you say groan <laughs> Yeah, that one, uh, maybe not quite up to the bad standard. So, on that note, (laughs) go out there and get wet. And stay safe.